0: This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Fellowship Journey," was recorded at Wellspring Church on October twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter one, verses five to ten. Our scripture passage this morning is found in 1 John chapter one, verses five through nine. First John chapter one, verses five through nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of God. Please be seated.
1: So we are continuing in 1 John, uh, I took a week break, and we'll actually be staying in these verses, verses 5 through 10, for the next two weeks. Last time we got together and talked about the goal of the Christian life, which coincides with the goal of this letter that John writes. And the goal of the Christian life is fellowship, it's that very oft-used word by Christians, to describe the gathering together of God's people. But at the core, fellowship is not about the gathering of people, but really it's about having relationship with God and who He is. And if you could imagine, considering every longing, every desire, every uh, relationship that we have that provides depth and meaning and value, Every pursuit of ours that we look for that we find our hope and delight in. And if you could sort of gather all of that together and say, where do we find that most? The Bible's answer is we find it in God himself. In fact, scripture really points out the idea that fellowship, according to verses 3 and 4, begins with God. Just looking again at those verses, verses 3 to 4, I want to read that again for you. It says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This really is the foundation of what Paul's writing about, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God and to actually have every desire satisfied. And so I can't reiterate this point enough that this is truly the core foundation of everything that John is going to write about. And so we know that joy exists because God exists with complete joy internally. That's the nature of who God is. He is Father, Son, Spirit, in perfect communion. And that communion, that fellowship, is what spurs out every other fellowship, every other relational connection. There is nothing in this world that will give us the delight that is found only in the perfect union of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's what Augustine says, everything else, every other pursuit of God or of life, apart from God Himself... He calls it a a counterfeit beauty. And I want to quote Augustine on this from the Confessions. And he says this, Sloth pretends to aspire to rest, but what sure rest is there save the Lord. Lush living likes to be taken for a contended abundance, but you are the full and inexhaustible store of a sweetness that never grows stale. Extravagance is a bogus generosity, but you, Lord... Are the infinitely wealthy giver of all good things. Avarice, which is greed, strives to amass possessions, but you own everything. Envy is a contentious overrank accorded to one another, but what ranks higher than you? Anger seeks revenge, but whoever exacts revenge with greater justice than yourself. Timidity uh, dreads any unforeseen or sudden threat to the things it loves and takes precautions for their safety. But is anything sudden or unforeseen to you? Who can separate what you love from you? Where is their ultimate security to be found except with you? That is to say that every desire, every pursuit, every life's goal and wish, all of it, we look for the world and somewhere outside to say, I will find it there. But Augustine's right. It's found ultimately in God, and everything else is a counterfeit pursuit, a counterfeit beauty. Every human being will always leave us lacking. Every relationship fails to provide what we long for. It's a faint beauty. I remember when I first got married, and my wife and I, Sue and I, we were riding on an airplane towards our honeymoon. And for those of you who are married and you perhaps are driving or going to some place, the thought that just kept on recurring to me was, this almost feels wrong. Because we had spent about two and a half years dating and another half year engaged. And so for about three years dating, it seemed so special, so great. Until you get married, and you start flying away to this place, and you feel, is this morally right? You spend so much time thinking, got to be judicious, maintain purity, try to do all that we can to honor God. And suddenly it switches based on saying, I do in a moment and it's gone. And so you think, how can, how can dating be so great when compared to really the, the fullness of marriage? It really is a faint beauty dating is. And for anyone who's married, you know that to be true. And so I almost think that for so much of our, our life, our world, we pursue faint beauties, trusting it, believing it, thinking that that is ultimately what we need and want, when in reality there is so much more. Paul describes knowing God as in Philippians 3.8 as the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when you know Christ, you have the utmost of all that you could long for. And everything pales in comparison. That's why John says you have to make this your utmost pursuit or everything that he's going to talk about moving forward won't really make sense. The world and its pleasures, as he talks about in 1st John chapter 2 verses 15 through 16, becomes so magnificent if we don't have in view the greatest beauty of all. And so we know that we have it in Christ. In Christ alone and in fact verse 5 says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all having a right view of God a God who is pure perfect and light makes everything pale in comparison so that's the first part of this fellowship this journey is to recognize that fellowship at the core begins with God that seems basic enough but the second part is what we're really going to tackle for this week and next week, is fellowship requires walking with God. We see that in verses 6 through 7. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This walking describes essentially a journey. And it's going together on a long, lifelong journey to be able to say, I know this person. I know this person so well. When I was in seminary, a friend of mine and I, we went fishing around this lake and during one of our off days. It was actually during the summer class session, and so it was a beautiful day in New England, and we're fishing. And suddenly, as we're having our rods in the water, a professor and his wife... They're, they're very old at the time and they start, they come up behind us and say, did you catch anything? We look at them and they're holding hands. They're about 80 years old and they have this look of just love towards not just, not towards us, but towards each other, but curious about us. The thing about this professor is, you all probably know this is when you have a, a teacher, It's very odd to meet them outside of the school context. They had, they always, especially this professor, his name was Meredith Klein, and if you know anything about theology, he's sort of one of the giants of theology. And this professor who talks, he he prayed in King James English. That's how it was. So when you see him and he's there holding his wife's hand and having the googly eyes towards his wife, and I just couldn't help but think, what a journey. You know, what a life's journey to see maybe Five decades of marriage together, I'm sure many trials and challenges, but here they are with such love and affection towards one another. It really, really sort of warmed the cockles of my heart, you might say. But I do think that when we think about fellowship with God, this walk in the light, I imagine it like that. It's because as you've walked with the Lord all these years, there's an intimacy, a desire, a joy that you, the longer you go, the more you spend time in prayer and study of his word. It's not an academic pursuit. It's a relationship. Very much so like the reflection of marriage. And so you get this sense, this flavor of what it means to be in fellowship. It really is an intimacy. One of the best retreats I ever attended was a retreat that we had a long time ago. Some of you were there where Jerry Bridges spoke. And as it was a really just the messages were wonderful about trusting God. But one of the best parts of that retreat and those messages was a men's breakout session. There was about 15, 20 of us who were there. And the question that we asked, someone asked was, what is, What about the Bible? What's your favorite Bible passage? And his answer was from Genesis. And it was a very small part on Enoch. And it it said, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. It was a very odd passage of Scripture that you would think that someone would say, that's someone who's been walking with the Lord for so long would say, that's a very odd passage to say that's your favorite Bible verse. And he explained why. He said, you know, David, he was so bold and so great. A military man and a king. Solomon, so wise. Peter, so bold. But Enoch, Enoch just walked with God. And he said, I think I could do that too. And when they said that, it really struck all of us to think that you can actually walk with God. You can have fellowship with him you can have an intimate life with Him. Because fellowship is about walking together. That you desire to walk with Him. It's about having the same passions, the same longings. You want to know and to learn and to grow together. To have the same goals. And in this way, Jerry Bridges is right. Walking with God is not showy. It's not spectacular. But it's what is required When we have fellowship, fellowship depends, fellowship trusts, it persists, it perseveres. David describes it this way in Psalm 23, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes when you walk with God, it's through dark times. So the walk isn't about happy times always. There are deathly times, there are shadowy times, there are times of trials and joys there's times of real sorrows and sometimes elation. So this journey with God is truly an intimacy, of walking. Secondly is that fellowship with God is walking in the light. John says it this way, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That is to say that we as people in fellowship with God embrace God's light to flood our souls. It means that he sees everything, and he knows everything about us. If you read David's words in Psalm 139, it's a very stark psalm. It's unnerving in a sense because it says that God knows everything that you think. In fact, David says in Psalm 139, one, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And so David is known by God, and he delights in that. Most of us, when we think about God knowing everything about us, knowing our every thought, we might shirk in light of that and be frightened by that. But actually, a person who is in the light is not frightened at all. David is known by God despite flaws. He knows what it means to be cherished. And the person who is living in the light of this wants that to happen. Jesus describes it this way in Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This person shines outwardly despite sin, despite flaws, despite character failures, despite the many mess-ups in their life. The light of the gospel, the light of Christ shines forth in them. I had the privilege of meeting George Niemann's mother, the one who had just died recently. Her name is uh, Anna. Everyone in Hands at Work called her Omi, and Omi in Afrikaans basically means grandmother. So she was essentially the Hands at Work grandmother. And she just recently went to go home to be with the Lord. And when we were, our family was there in 2011, we got a chance to get to know her. And one thing you... You got the sense of when you met her is her softness, her kind heart. She was always so concerned about you and truly a woman who said, I am praying for you. And you knew she was praying for you. You knew she did it. She did it all the time. And so when you first met her, the first thing she would ask you is, how can I pray for you? And alongside with that, she was always so kind hearted and thoughtful. So the, the challenge of meeting someone like that is that when you meet that person, you start thinking, boy, I feel so prayerless. And I, I just feel as though I need to work on my own character, my own lack of kind-heartedness because this person was such a foil to me that it made me realize that something is amiss with me. That's what it means when Jesus talks about the light shining. See, the light shining, though, is not meant to she didn't in, in any way make you feel guilty. It's just who she was. That's the thing about someone who has the light of the gospel, the light of God shining in their heart, is that when you are in their presence, it just reveals to you your own areas of need. And it wasn't to make you feel guilty, but it was to really show you what it means for someone who follows Christ and how much... You also want to follow Christ like that. If you ever meet someone like that, I've had different professors like that, or even just godly men and women in my life who I've encountered. It really is wondrous to see that. And so that is the reality of what this light looks like. Even people who have the light of Christ shining in them can show you your own flaws and failures. In a good way. I liken it like this. It's, if you've ever gone to a department store and you go to the downstairs section, the first thing that sort of hits you is the the, the of of all the cosmetics and perfumes that are there. And I remember one time walking through and going to, you don't even have to ask me why, but I went up to one of those cosmetics counters and went up to it, and there's this gigantic mirror there. And it has like a um, lighting around the mirror and it's magnified. And so I went to go look in the mirror and what I see is every single blackhead and spot on my face. I mean, every flaw of my, I had to jerk back and say, I don't want to look at that again. But when I was looking at that mirror, because it magnified every flaw, it was unnerving. And that's what the light does. Ultimately, it magnifies every flaw. It it really shows everything that is wrong with you. And that's what it means to encounter Christ. That is to say that he is the light of the world. He is the light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And so when you first encounter Christ, you actually see every flaw of your soul. Actually, you don't see everything, you see as much as the Lord allows you to see, which is many, much, but we still don't even understand it enough. And you begin to realize and think, how can I ever be in fellowship with this God? It should be the case that when we see God, we see our sin. We see our flaws. We see our rebellion. It is not an exaggeration to say that I have a rebellious heart against God that's what seeing god does is it points us to that truth and that reality fellowship with god also requires us from going uh, us from going from darkness to light we want to walk in this light now i know you might be thinking i don't want that i don't like seeing all my flaws all my sins but if you are in fellowship with god there is a change. It is as radical as going from darkness to light. Meaning if you are a Christian, you know you were in darkness once and you hated it. Looking back, you say, I didn't. I don't want to ever live in that darkness. If you don't struggle with the fact that there is light and all of your sins are revealed, then perhaps it means you are still in darkness. The Christian wants to walk in the light. The Christian knows that they have been changed, transformed. And this transformation is forever. That is by definition what it means to be a Christian. And it's that simple. Imagine a room that is pitch black. You can't see anything. You don't know what's in this room. And you stumble around the room tripping over furniture, there's books on the floor, there's a stapler over there, there's a scissors on the floor, and you're walking and a toy, and you're tripping on every single thing. That's what it means to be walking in darkness. Nothing is visible to you. But suddenly, the light turns on. And when the light turns on, everything is visible. The obstacles, though, are still there. It's not like everything was cleaned up. The obstacles are still there. I do this in my own room, is that there? my bed, there's a post on the corner. And as I make my turn around my side of the bed on my corner, I always stub my toe. Every time. So often. Because rather than taking a wide turnaround, I take a tight turn around just to get as fast as I can to that area. And I stub my toe. It happens so often. The light is on. I know it's there, but it still happens. This is what it means when we have the light, we see the obstacles. It doesn't mean that we don't stub our toe. Sometimes it becomes a habit. I take the corner too tight every time. And eventually you have to learn, but it's hard to learn that. It doesn't mean that the light isn't on. And it doesn't mean that the obstacles are gone. We're not living in darkness. They're still there. We have to learn. We have to grow. But we have to understand that this is a part of what it means to be a Christian, is that the light is on. And so there's only darkness and light. There's nothing in the middle ground. It's not as though we're on a dimmer switch in our Christian life. And slowly we eke in the light. No, light is on. When the light is on, you know how to navigate this room. Sometimes we fail to navigate it perfectly. Many times we do. But the light is still on. The Bible has so many examples of this. The prodigal son. The prodigal son was completely lost, blind. But he, when the light turns on, he, he comes out of, uh, out of the stupor. It says he comes to his senses. Jesus writes in, in Luke. And so when he comes to his senses, suddenly his mind is clear and he wants to change. And he says, I'm going back. Zacchaeus, you know, the little man who climbs the sycamore tree. When he meets Jesus, he describes that life is radically different for him. This is how he describes it. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Before he had cheated his fellow Jews, he had been a liar, a deceiver, abused his own people. But once he came to know Christ, he actually changed. There was a turning. There was a not just a refusal to defraud, but he wanted to undo all the things that he had done wrong. Fourfold. The Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, once going to kill followers of Jesus, turns around to be the greatest witness for the sake of the gospel, the witness for Christ that the Roman world how it now knew, talking and preaching and proclaiming Christ even to his death. These people are not special people. They're not Christian heroes. They're normal people. They just describe what it means to be a Christian. A Christian goes from darkness to light. A Christian goes from never desiring God at all to suddenly having fellowship with Him. And even if you were born in a Christian family, and we'll talk about this throughout this text, throughout John's letter but even if you've been born in a Christian family, you still go from darkness to light. That has to be there. It can't be, well, I was raised in a Christian home and everything was pretty good. And then suddenly I became a, a real Christian. It's not how it works, actually. Whether you're in a Christian home or whether you were once a drug addict and strung up and living on the streets and came to know Christ, or whether you were a former prostitute coming to know the Lord, both went from darkness to light. And John really makes clear to us that there's nothing in between. Again, there's no dimmer switch that slowly fades in the gospel. It's a it's the same transformation. But it has a different appearance externally, but internally it is exactly the same. So we might think we're a good person. And therefore, we were once pretty good, and now we're really good. And so therefore, that's why I'm a Christian today. That's a very, very wrong view of what John is preaching to. And he's describing that that's not correct. That's actually dangerous if we think that way. Your only hope to avoid the disaster of destruction is to recognize that in Christ Jesus alone, He's the only one who could transform us by His Holy Spirit from darkness to light. And that has to happen. And it does happen to so many of us in this very room. One of the things that um, our youth mentors, our Access mentors have been doing for these past few weeks has been sharing their testimonies. And what's interesting about their testimonies, we've only heard of a couple of them thus far, is thus far most of the mentors did not grow up in Christian homes. And I find that to be so interesting that the people who are engaged, thriving, did not grow up in Christian homes. And I'm not saying at all that to be a Christian in a Christian home is inherently a a negative thing. It is not, per se. But I do think there are very big pitfalls that, again, we'll discuss and talk about for the next few months of what it means to raise a family in a Christian home without actually understanding what it means to be a Christian. And it actually can be dangerous and deadly to your children if you don't grapple with what it means to truly be a Christian and then to try to raise Christian children. It's dangerous to them and it's dangerous to your own soul. But when I listen to these testimonies, I think to myself, wow, what a transformation to go from darkness to light. And it's something that we should be saying these testimonies to one another over and over again. We need to hear the testimonies of this darkness to light story amongst us. We need to understand that the new birth is truly miraculous. It is a birth story. And that birth story is something we need to celebrate and to discuss and to hear and to ask. Tell me your story. I want to hear the good story, the good news of the gospel, and how it changed you. Who can make someone who does not know Jesus or truly love him or in fellowship with him suddenly desire to follow him? It's not going to be someone's oratory skills or apologetics or hearing a really great theological argument. It's going to be Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. So we need to be sharing these stories. We need to ask for these stories. How many of you know the darkness to light story of the person sitting right next to you? How many of you know it within your own family? Have you ever asked that of your friends? It's something that we need to be regularly engaging in. It's actually what helps a non-Christian Understand who Christ is most. Because you are the greatest advertisement for the, for the gospel. Not the church. Not, if we were to send out a bunch of ads and say we're gonna have this event, not this event, this preacher is gonna come in and he's gonna give a a gospel message and so it's gonna be a revival meeting. We're gonna have the band play great music and we're gonna have great food and we're gonna give a, give you all a bunch of cards and you're going to have to pass it out for Easter, let's say, or whatever it might be. See, we always think that it's going to be an event and get that, get those non-Christians into this event and have that professional person share this gospel story and they know exactly how to say it. And if they say it rightly and the band plays and the lights turn off at the perfect time and people start crying here and there and we get this atmosphere, that's how we're going to get people to turn to Jesus. No, 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 no. It is you, your story, your life. You are the direct means by which God proclaims the good news of the gospel through your testimony, through your sharing of I went from darkness to light. If you're gathering with friends, non-Christians, and we never share our story with them, some will reject you. They will. But some will say, I want to hear more. I want to know what happened. And if you've never had an opportunity to share that story, you need to ask yourself, why not? What is keeping you? Because that's an opportunity for your friends, your family members to hear, how did you go from darkness to light? I remember what you were like. You were that drunkard in college. You drank the most. I was always holding the garbage bag, cleaning up your vomit. I mean, there's like that type of transformation needs to be told. And that's what it means to go from darkness to light. We need to share these stories. This isn't about telling stories for story's sake. We need to hear the stories of others. It really encourages us. It reminds us that God is still at work. That what happened to us all those years ago, a miracle took place. And sometimes, I do think we don't hear enough miracles. We expect the miracles to be some big opening of the heavens and a sign to come down. But you are the sign. It's already happened. Next to the resurrection of Christ, you are God's greatest miracle if you are a believer of Jesus, if you are in fellowship with Him. By hearing people's stories of how Jesus saved them and brought them from darkness to light, it also helps us to remember our own story, why we, our faith is so precious. And it is a tragedy that Christians gather together every week without once talking about the power of Jesus Christ in their life. So if you are meeting with Christians, I, w- I have a question for you. Does Jesus come up in your conversations? I'm not talking about meeting with non-Christians. The, that, those instances... I do believe Jesus can and should come up in conversation, but I'm asking in your meetings with Christians, do you talk about Jesus? If you're out playing golf, there's four of you, and you're out, you know, three, four, five hours, there's a whole conversation about the real estate market, stocks down, you know, am I purchasing this? How are my kids? You know, what college are they going to go to? How's your golf game? And not once does Christ come up amongst Christians. If that's the case, then we have to ask the question, do I have fellowship with Jesus? If I don't have fellowship with Jesus, Jesus is not a part of my conversation. And that reveals where my heart is. That's who I really am. And there's only darkness and light. So we have to... Really, again, ask this question. And if the more honest we are with where we're at. Then the more the Lord can deal with us. And he can show us. But if my whole existence is just talking about everything other than Christ. Then really, am I having fellowship with him? Am I in fellowship with him? Last week, Pastor Toby, he uh, talked about Koi Tenboom, another way that we can understand and grow in fellowship is by reading great stories about Christians throughout church history from Corrie Ten Boom, who hid Jews and paid a heavy price for that. Um, you can read about John Newton, Eric Little, Jim Elliott, Hudson Taylor, Augustine, John Bunyan. I mean, the list is endless. and There are modern Christians. You read these stories, even small snippets, and you are encouraged. It reminds you that you're not walking alone. That's the whole point of Hebrews 11. It shows us that we're not on this journey by ourselves. For those perhaps who do not have that dramatic story, I tell you, if you are in Christ, you have a story. There was a point where even if you grew up in a Christian home, where you recognized your rebellion against God. In your heart of hearts, deep down, you realize that you were hardened towards him. You had no desire for him. You didn't want to know him. No matter how many good, nice Bible stories you know about Noah or Samuel or Samson, all of that is meaningless. Actually, they're just a bunch of stories, no different than reading stories in Aesop's fables. But suddenly, it all started making sense. Suddenly, you realized you needed a Savior. Suddenly, the flaws, all the blackheads, the spiritual blackheads started coming out, and you saw them all, and you said, I need to change. And you realize you couldn't do it. And suddenly that cross made a big difference to you. It re- you recognize that your identity is not based on whether I am the best swimmer at the swim meet. Or whether I get straight A's. Or whether I get the job that I pursued my whole life, my career. Whether I get married or not. Suddenly all of that is negligible compared to knowing that my identity has to be in something deeper than that. And when that happens... That's a dramatic story that is just as dramatic as the prostitute who came out of prostitution and turned to Christ as the drug dealer, as the murderer. That story, that Christian grew up in a Christian home story is just as dramatic. And that story needs to be told too. But you need to actually have experienced it. And some of you have. We are on this journey together. And this journey is in fellowship with God the Son, who makes it possible by His very bloodshed so that whether you are raised in a Christian home or from the world's perspective are just sort of the vile sinners or maybe from the church's perspective, a vile sinner, everyone who is a Christian goes from darkness to light. And that is only made possible through the blood of his son, which we'll speak a lot about next week. And when we understand this, that you are messed up, but in Christ Jesus, we are saved. All of our flaws, all of our sins have been revealed, but we've been set free. When we know this to be true, that Jesus gave everything so that we might have joy with him in this fellowship journey forever, That He died so that we would never be turned away and we'd be walking with Him eternally. That's when we know that we have this joy that is set before us, a complete joy. I hope you know that. Let's pray together. Father, we turn to You, who is the God who loved us so much that Your own Son was sent so that we would be walking together with You forever and ever. No obstacle can keep us from that when Jesus Christ has cleared it. He is, He is our guide. He is our mediator, our advocate. He is the one who sets us free. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room that they would not be satisfied with thinking that they are with you when their whole life is devoid of Christ. And even if they grew up in a Christian home and heard many Bible stories, memorized parts of Scripture, and yet they're not walking with you, help them to see, oh Lord, the danger of that road. And that you want them to see that only through Christ alone can they have hope. Lord, you have provided everything we could ever need to have our utmost complete joy And I pray that we would not turn away from that, but to see that in Christ Jesus, we have everything. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, help us to remember that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. We no longer need to walk on our own. We know that we are with you and you have paid the heavy price of your own blood shed, Lord Jesus, so that we might have abundance with you Forever and ever. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.